Good morning, everybody. I'd like to welcome you all to the Daily Energy Markets podcast. Uh, I'm delighted to be joined this morning by Rachel Ziemba, founder of Ziemba Insights and adjunct fellow at the Center for a New American Security. That in itself is uh, is a very interesting uh, name of, of, of uh, organization these days. Matthew Wright, senior freight analyst at Kipler and Abha Gandhi, joining us for the first time today, senior pricing analyst at General Index. So thanks, everyone, um, for joining us uh, today. Matt, let me start with you. And let's talk th all things freight, because, of course, that's sort of uh, one of the things that's top of mind in these oil markets these days, Red Sea disruptions, redirection of flows, and all the costs related to that. Um, are we seeing uh, the market getting more at ease with this new normal? Again, another challenge? Or, or you know, uh, is there uncertainty going forward? Good morning. Thanks very much. I think it's actually a bit of both. I think you're absolutely right. There is definitely now uh, the market has sort of reached a point of stability um, with transits down, but holding. So just to give some context, tanker transits are down around 44 percent since November. Um, so there's about 12 a day uh, passing through the um, Red Sea and the Suez Canal. So this is quite this is definitely a lot lower than where we were in November, but it's not necessarily getting worse and it's not necessarily getting better. So the market is now sort of baking this in and essentially looking forward to the rest of the year and assuming this is going to be in place for a couple of months at least. Um, I think Merce came out uh, earlier this week and said, look, we should expect this now through to the second half of the year. And I think that's definitely our um our assumption as well there doesn't look to be any change in that all it takes is for one or two ships to be attacked or attempts on vessels uh once a week or or even less and that is enough to keep owners um away from the area and to keep insurance premiums high so yeah i think absolutely the market is sort of assuming this is going to come come into place and as a result we're now seeing changes in trade flows become a bit more permanent obviously it's still very early days and you, we've got a lot of seasonality of the year to go through to see how these flows are going to develop um but for for now uh i think we should assume uh transits are going to remain constrained okay thanks matt uh rachel welcome again let me go to you and let's, let's stick to the freight story and just but ask you about the recent u.s sort of new layer of sanctions they're getting tougher mm. on russian fleets uh, uh, maybe that hasn't kicked in yet, but but uh, we we are hearing from some of our India-based um, specialists that that yes, it's already affecting flows to there, for example, of Russian oil. Um, I mean, it, has the U.S. made the right decision to squeeze those fleets at this very you know, tricky time, obviously for freight in general? Uh, and is it going to make that difference to obviously impacting Russia uh, as opposed to? the other fallout that we could see in general for costs and, and, and on our flows. Sure. Well, we'll, we'll see ultimately if that was the right time. Um, you know, I think we can, if we go back to over the last couple of months, when I was with you guys in Fujera, at that point, we were sort of in a period of almost um, non-enforcement, both of Russia sanctions or, or at least oils, you know, the, the oil price cap and the Iran, you know, and, and on Iran's fleet, the sort of dark fleet that serves Iran and, and Venezuela. And since then, I think we've had a, a palpable shift 
Um, you know, and, and uh, that being said, there's still plenty of Russian, you know, barrels that are sort of getting to market. Um, but it does seem like the discount has opened up, the costs have increased. Um, you know, Matt can tell us even more about this, but of course, Russian oil tankers are among those ones that are still going through, um, you know, the, the, the Suez Canal and the mm-hmm. Red Sea. Any European flagged carriers, if anything, are more susceptible both to physical risk, but also, um, also the insurance premium. And, you know, I'll note even the um, the fertilizer ship that was targeted uh, earlier in the week, which was British flagged. So I think that that so but ultimately, I think we, we are seeing we saw over the, the last couple of days, the end of last week, um, not only additional Russian tankers uh, violating the price gap targeted, but also Sovcom flopped. Right. The big sort of ultimate owner of most of these most of these vessels. Um, Now, that was undercut by a general license that said any tankers that haven't already violated sanctions, go ahead, do business with them. But I think, if anything, this means that the fleet that is going to serve um, Russia uh, will be sort of it will be harder for tankers to go back and forth between sort of legal trade and less legal trade. And so that probably will tighten tighten the market. Um, and it will sort of make it more difficult. We're seeing India and China both say we're willing to take this semi-licit crude, but if your tanker has actually been sanctioned, we don't want we don't want this in our ports. So I think this does cause some issues and and frictions. The fact that it's happening at a time that the market is generally well supplied, and as I would agree with Matt, that the market has settled into some of these disruptions, mm-hmm. maybe makes it less disruptive than it would have otherwise. But but this is a, a market tightening environment, and I think it will cut Russian oil revenues, but. They may actually, those operating the ships will, of course, charge more. So it's, it's an open question to me how much it will negatively impact the Russian, you know, sort of war machine. Um, and that's where I think the other sanctions will come into play. But the bo- point for any operators right now is that there's a lot more paperwork. They have to attest every voyage and, and that's going to cause some frictions. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Rachel. Abha, I mean, the same kind of question to you. Uh, obviously, you're focusing a lot on the crude, Mideast crude, crudes uh, to Asia, presumably, mostly. You know, give us your take on how this sort of uh, vessel disruption, redirection costs are, if any, if, any, if, if at all, impacting Mideast crudes uh, to Asia or, or anywhere else. Thanks, Tiala, for that question. And I think the panelists have, to a large extent, even, even sort of answered that question. But to add a further perspective, I think what we're seeing currently um, right now is a lot of, um, I think, a little bit of change in trade flow. So, for instance, um, you know, prior to the whole Red Sea crisis, we were seeing, you know, the Middle East crude go significantly into Europe without much d- disruption, especially the median sours. But, of course, that has now... Um, you know, come off as well and has come off significantly. And that can even be seen in the Brent Dubai spreads, right? So end of last year, for example, um, at one point, uh, Dubai was briefly sitting above Brent, but then that has um, that has now changed. And today the Brent Dubai spread is trending at about, what, $2 a barrel, um, um, despite the OPEC cuts, right? So um, having said that, of course, this, the flows have slowed down. And what has resulted is that you have all this sour crude now sitting in Asia as well, right? And not to forget with the fundamentals, we are also heading into a refinery maintenance season. We are heading into spring. So there is a lot 
there is this whole trade flow disruption of especially the Middle East food as well. So to, and and so Abha, I know I know we don't have any official stats from China, but what are indicators are you getting of how the storage, how full their storage is at the moment? You know, we you know obviously they stock up when prices are good. Prices have been relatively okay. Where where are the indications there for, that you're getting? So I think at this point for China, they are just coming back uh, from the Lunar New Year holidays. There has there is an expectation that the domestic consumption of their refined products, whether it's gas, oil, gasoline, should have been slightly better. So we should be seeing um, we should be seeing them maybe perhaps come in the market. But at this point, I really haven't seen uh, too much activity of their front. Maybe Matt can add further insights. Uh, but uh, but yeah. Okay, thanks, Abhat. Matt, I wanted to ask you about one of the news uh, headlines we have on our bulletin today is about Russia's announcement of um, uh, banning gasoline. And, and for domestic reasons, they're citing, i.e. we need it more for the refineries because we've got maintenance coming, we need the storage, the stock that we have, etc. It's not so much, oh, we're out to, you know, make things hard for the rest of the world. But, you know, what, what, what impact do we expect to see on products because of that, if at all? Yeah, I don't think it's going to be a huge impact. Russian gasoline exports <clears throat> don't make up a, a huge component of their product export slate, majority being diesel, gas oil, um, naphtha. But I think, <clears throat> pardon me, I think the the fact that they're announcing this shows their concern around domestic, uh, serving the domestic market, that that is uh, potentially tight and it's very, very important that they protect that. I think also when you take into account the, the number of drone strikes we've had through this year on refineries in Russia, that we're expecting that this is definitely going to be impacting refinery output, reducing gasoline production. So that is part sort of it's all folding into that situation. We're expecting uh, Russian product exports to drop. But this is, as I said, mainly going to impact naphtha into Asia, I mean, which is already having troubles getting there because you know, Black Sea to um, Black Sea to Asia is now a very, very long voyage. Um, it makes a lot more sense just to take a Mid East Gulf um, cargo. So, yeah, I think there's there's a lot more to it than while gasoline exports itself is not going to be hugely impacted. It tells you a lot more about what's going on in Russia. Okay, thanks, Matt. Rachel, I wanted to talk to you about one of the headlines again today, uh, which is OPEC Plus. Uh, we always have to mention them at least once on every call. Um, you know, it, it's kind of hinting that, yes, they're mulling, extending these voluntary cuts till June, which has, you know, which the market has already, I think, priced in from what we hear. Um, but what about beyond that? I mean, um, is there there's there's some sources there citing that it could go beyond you know, are we just still expecting a step by step from them? Do you think uh, uh, is that what the market should be sort of holding out for, or uh, you know, do they have and with with these geopolitical sort of uh, turmoil that we're seeing, do we do we expect any different take from them? So I think I think it we'd need the geopolitical turmoil to turn into actual barrels lost, right? So I think if there were actual barrels lost, um, of course. Saudi Arabia in particular and others would be quite ready to sort of add, um, you know, if you had a price move up an actual loss. So I think we need we would need that that sort of conversion. And, you know, we've seen, um, you know, that I mean, in some ways, I agree with everything Matt just said about Russia's domestic reasons for their announcement. But of course, it also helps that in a broader context of meeting their OPEC plus requirements that Russia has often been a little less than compliant or the opacity of data has made it harder to sort of determine what they're actually doing. 
Um, so, so my assumption for some time has been that yes, definitely sort of roll into the sort of mid-year and, and, and sort of into the second half. I think it really depends on, um, you know, what goes on in sort of Chinese, you know, Chinese demand, which, you know, some indicators show it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's stabilizing and that some inventories are being drawn down. Um, but I'm, I'm not too optimistic. It will sort of pick up that much further. Um, and then, of course, what happens with supply in the Americas, right? The non-OPEC supply. Um, but yes, I, I do think in this environment where some major economies and global economy are sort of slowing down, where in those sort of contexts that OPEC plus is unlikely to be able to bring a lot of new supplies uh, supplies to the market. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really, about, I think, about those macro factors and whether in sort of a, a regionalization of the conflict, does it actually impact um, <clears throat> Iranian, you know, sort of Iranian supplies either on a, um, you know, sort of sanctions enforcement side, or is there sort of an impact to uh, sort of the, the the Gulf supplies? And I think to get a real move up, um, you know, that, then I think you would need to see see see, see broadening there. Um, and so that's not in the baseline, but this is already a tight market with a, or this is a tightening market. Um, that was what OPEC Plus was trying to do. Um, and so they'll be watching. And so they're doing this thing right now, trying to do forward guidance, um, but they haven't maybe, you know, sort of quite figured out uh, how to do that, that forward guidance. And so I think that takes us well in towards the, the, the end of the year. Okay, thanks, Rachel. Uh, Abha, I mean, OPEC, the other thing that OPEC are planning to do at the, officially in June at their official meeting, of course, they can take a lot of decisions before that remotely, is, is talk about these uh, quotas. Uh, okay, uh, going forward, and, and we'll probably see some some changes there uh, uh, formally put into place. Um, what what are your expectations that that they will do there in terms of the other crude uh, that's being produced within the group? Obviously, you're following Middle East crudes, but um, what impact could we see from the likes of uh, you know Nigeria for Nigerian crude, uh, etc., uh, and even Venezuelan crude? I think um, at this point, it's a bit early to say how they would reshuffle because we also need to see how much of, you know, how much the, the group has actually produced. The latest numbers are still to come out. So we're waiting to see that. And that sort of gives us a direction as well. I think on Venezuela crude, what is very important to keep in mind is that the six months of the sanction relief is also sort of coming to an end. Uh, we are yeah. yet to hear on what exactly is going to happen on that front as well. Is the sanction relief going to continue? It's not going to continue. So I think there are a lot of these geopolitical factors that are still in play till, till June, right? So for now, yes, um, as the panelists have also said, we are seeing that the, you know, the ongoing cuts are sort of being extended until the first half of this year. So we have to wait and see a little bit longer to to understand what the wider um, you know impact is going to look like as well. Yeah. Matt, what about LNG? Um, we saw obviously quite a bit of that go to Europe last year when it was had a gas crisis, and we don't see that this year, obviously in terms of prices or even availability. Um, uh, but again, LNG also being impacted through Suez. Uh, so any 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 nervousness there? Prices are quite co very competitive at the moment in terms of low <laughs> and not very costly. So so how how are sort of stakeholders sort of looking at that market? Yeah, so I think when you when you look at the situation in the Red Sea, LNG has been relatively unscathed in the the fact that it's just really Qatar to Europe flows that have been affected. 
um, which, you know, are important, you know, flows are down to, I think this month, there are about 570 KT, which is down quite significantly on, on where the average per month. Um, whereas when you look at the more, uh, you know, other flows, so Qatar East or US Europe or US East, so even US East, it, you know, it's marginally faster to go through the Suez Canal, but it's not that bad to go around the Cape. So generally speaking, LNG flows have sort of walked, shrugged this one off. And actually, when you look at LNG freight, it's actually been falling during this period. And that's just because of the wider context of what's happening with the LNG freight market. Um, as you mentioned, the fact that we've not had a particularly cold winter in Europe and Europe has not have been having to battle with Asia to the same extent. Um, so we're not seeing that fleet stretch. So while it's certainly had an impact and those Qatar uh, cargoes are are being impacted. Um, and I mean, I, I, it, we looked at the data recently and there's been zero transits of LNG cargoes through the Red Sea for weeks now. Um, so yeah, it's definitely an impact, but um, the market seems to be seems to be coping. Okay, thanks, Matt. Uh, there's our survey question for today. Are uh, oil markets now factoring in Red Sea disruptions and costs for the entire year? Uh, that Maersk, as you said, Maersk had mentioned that as a sort of warning shot of that might be the case. Yes or no, there's a belief that the Mideast crisis will be resolved, you know, by June. Rachel, let me go to you on a, on, on and about the Mideast crisis. Um, to, to, well, first of all, to get your, your point of view on where, uh, from a U.S. perspective, uh where things are going, you know, we've, we've got headlines every day that there are talks going on amongst all the involved parties. Um, we see this as stalling when we're sitting here in the Middle East, uh, more of the same. But from a U.S. perspective, um, you know, what what are the expectations? Obviously, it's an election year. Biden has an interest to do X, Y, Z. Um, are you hopeful that we will see a permanent ceasefire and the U.S. backing that eventually or 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 what? I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd like to see that. I hope that I, I think that they are sort of pushing for that. Um, there's been a lot of talk, um, you know, as you say, ceasefire might be imminent. I'm not, I'm personally, I'm not too optimistic that if something was announced now that it would hold. Um, right. So I guess the answer to your question is no. Um, and just because I think that the perspectives, um, you know, sort of, you know, I think that the Israelis are not quite ready to sort of end this opportunity and, and, you know, the U.S. for all that they um, you know, are sort of publicly, you know, sort of critiquing. Um, there's also, I think, a dynamic, and you see this with other foreign issues of to what extent are certain foreign players sort of trying to wait and see who the next president is going to be, right? Is it going to be another Biden administration or will it be Trump, which is, you know, in a Trump administration would probably be preferred by the by the Israelis. Um, you know, it's not clear to me exactly where, um, you know, a Trump administration would come in, you know, with a change, you know, with a changed Middle East, not only because of the conflict, but with this persistent uh, Saudi-Iran detente that has been in play, which has been, I think, one of the important reasons that has limited some of the energy infrastructure damage, right? We're not seeing Houthi attacks on, on Saudi or, or Emirati infrastructure, mm. which we, we, we might have had. I mean, again, there's there's too many what ifs in that, in that scenario is about to sort of paint. Um, so, look, I, I think, um, you know, it's not... Uh, 
I, it's hard to put a timeline on when this sort of, you know, sort of comes, you know, comes to play or what that that looks like. Um, but, you know, I, I think in a similar way to what Matt said at the start, that the oil market has sort of settled into these disruptions. I think that certain regional players, even though they're very much pushing for, um, you know, that there, there's still things that can, um, you know, pop up. But the, the general thing is, is trying to avoid further, uh, for, further regionalization. Yeah. And I mean, just to stay with you, Rachel, on let, let's bring China into that question, because, you know, sure. uh, it, it, it did come out quite strongly uh, a week or so ago, uh, you know, um, criticizing what Israel's doing uh, in Gaza and sort of vocally expressing quite specifics. And before this conflict, it was being seen or at the start of it being seen as a possible mediator, etc. Um, you know, where does China? What, how, what's the U.S. perspective on China's role in uh, in getting involved in in balancing things in the Middle East behind the scenes? Do you think could there be something going on, and what do you think is viable? Yeah, so I think the U.S. would like to see China getting more involved in mediating and as a peacemaker. But of course, they'd like to China do it in the way that the U.S. would have done it, yeah. right? I mean, which never sort of works in, as 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 well as 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 one as one thinks. Um, you know, China obviously as the biggest trading nation has an interest in trade flows going as quickly and sort of cheaply as possible. I mean, of course, that's that's arguably a global public good. Um, and so they have an interest. Now, they also, you know, in, and they don't have the same baggage that the U.S. does in the region, but they all, and, and they're the, the, the biggest buyer, but of of the crude, but there's still a limitation of how far China is willing to go in, in, in negotiating. Um, look, the U.S. and China are still on their talk more, try to avoid escalation of, of, of tensions. Um, that I think is being challenged not only by conflict in the Middle East, and but also the sort of sanctions on Russian entities uh, that, for the, that, that are that are China based. Um, and, you know, and, and I think this is also coming at a time when China EU relations have been deteriorating, especially on the trade side. And we saw very harsh words from China about the European, you know, about the European Union sanctions on their admittedly very small companies or smaller companies that are supplying Russia. So I do think the diplomatic efforts are, are arguably sort of impaired by these, these other tensions. But at the end of the day, um, you know, there's a lot of global interest in trying to um, de-escalate uh, and stop this, you know, stop this brutal war. It's just not clear to me um, exactly how far China will be able to, 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 to go in yeah. that. Yeah. And of course, there's the theory out there that that that, you know, part of the incentive behind this war is that the U.S. does want to get back involved in 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 the maritime area of of the Middle East uh, because of China and because to, to sort of act it as, as a sort of balancing out to, to China's dominance elsewhere. Um, Matt, uh, let me go to you. I'm not sure if you can give me precise details on this, but. Last year, we talked a lot about Iranian crude increasing. They had a pretty good, really good improvement on the water. Give us what indicators you're getting about Iranian crude on the water. It doesn't. We don't seem to be hearing about it a lot, particularly about it being sanctioned more strictly. Practically speaking, what what indicators are you getting there? Yeah, yeah. I literally just having a look while we're on the call just to see what the latest is. So in February, uh, exports are down slightly uh, at about 1.1 million barrels a day. This is compared with November, where we are about closer to 1.5. So it's definitely down. Um, I think you know a lot of this is just to do with Chinese buying. China's the only customer, really. So 
And Chinese ex total exports to China over the last few months have been around 9.4. Sorry, exports too, not, not imports. So I would say partly a lot of it's uh, linked to that. Um, in terms of, you know, sanctioned vessels and, and their availability, there's been, um, you know, the fact that we've now uh, sanctions on Venezuela have been lifted. So a lot of those vessels are, they have now sort of stopped doing Venezuelan trade and are sort of moving back. So there's mm. more ships really in the market to to keep those uh, Iranian cargo, cargoes moving. So that's not a restraint at the moment. Um, and in the broader context, it's still well within the normal range of, of Iranian exports. Okay, and on the Venezuelan crude, I know that's not specifically your your expertise, but uh, are people are is the market expecting a renewal of? I mean, I should ask Rachel this, but I'll ask you. Mm. You've probably got more data on that. Are we expecting a rollover of the six month reprieve? Uh, is that in the U.S.'s interest? Do you think, from a crude pricing point of view? Yeah, and I'll, I'll let Rachel weigh in in a bit, but I think it is, and for a couple of reasons. Um, one, though, that crude is incredibly useful for uh, U.S. Gulf refineries. It's a, a you know heavy sours. Um, we've also got the startup of Mexican refinery later this year, Dos Bocas, which is going to reduce uh, heavy sours into the U.S. further. So the U.S. is going to be really looking around to get those sour grades into the Gulf. And Venezuela provides a really good uh, flow of that. So there's a, yeah, a good few reasons why they'll want to maintain that. Okay, thanks, Matt. Abha, actually, I'll just go to you. As we're talking about refining, uh, uh, in terms of how it might be impacting Midi's crudes as well and, and production, we've got, of course, Kuwait has the largest refinery, I believe, in, in the region, El Zor, which is now in full capacity up and running, or at least soon to be. Um, how is that impacting uh, production, I suppose, uh, in, in Kuwait itself, possibly, and also in terms of the export scenario from that refinery into the region and how that might be impacting uh, other flows? So I think on, on Kuwait, yes, um, I think they have fully started, but a lot of focus has been on their VNSFO exports for the longest time on product front as well. And it was, you know, largely done because they're still not in the summer season and, you know, the, um, and so domestic consumption is yet to still pick up. But um, I think because they haven't fully they have started but not fully started we will i think this summer will actually be a real test to see where those product flows are going to look like and it's not just with alzur right you've got oman's dukum also that has sort of started so you have a lot of these ruais for example abu dhabi mm. um the refineries also starting um coming out of maintenance so i think we will see a couple of these things but it will probably unfold a little bit more as we head into the summer summer months to really see what the flows look like at this point of time. Okay, and Abha, uh, could you give us an update on what you're hearing about on the crude side, Iraqi production, Libyan, we've had stops and starts there. Uh, there was some positive um, optimism that, that Iraqi uh, crude would be would be back, exports would be back, uh, sort of a bit more back in action uh, at the start of this year. Any updates there and indications? So I think with Libya, um, there was uh, the whole Sahara oil field issue earlier part of the year that has been resolved. So I think once we see the OPEC numbers coming out, perhaps the expectation might be that that might be a little bit on the higher side. Yes, uh, there was a minor disruption, a brief dis disruption of the Wafa oil oil um, oil field as well. So let's. I don't think that's really impacted the market as much. Um, I. Haven't looked at Iraq to be very honest, but I I haven't heard anything otherwise. 
Okay, thanks. Rachel, I did want to go back to you about that Venezuelan crude question. And, uh, you know, do you expect that we'd see a um, a renewal of that six-month reprieve? And and what indicators are you getting that that is giving uh, confidence to, to companies to get more involved than they already have done? Yeah, so I, I think the so short answer is I don't think right now that it's going to be renewed. I think there'll be a certain baseline. I mean, Matt's completely right. It is beneficial for the U.S. energy ecosystem. Um, but I do think that the, the in a sense, the, the politics, um, you know, uh, not only the election, but also having explicitly tied the reprieve to political concessions, make it hard to back away and, and so on. And uh, beyond the energy market issues that, that Matt brought up, arguably um, non-renewal uh, would, you know, would, make the sort of migration crisis even more difficult to sort of, you know, handle, perhaps. Um, that's that's a topic for another day. We're seeing um, Maduro sort of act tough not only with Guyana and try to put some of that at risk, but also not accepting back in the sort of deported migrants. Um, you know, this is, this is a big political issue in the United States. So uh, now then the question is, if the reprieve is not renewed, do you go back to the baseline of, of October or do you sort of, you know, does that impair some of the, the, the swaps that were going on that the Chevron and others are able to take advantage of? Um, but, you know, what seems from the market perspective, um, I think, if anything, there does seem to be a bit of a wait and see. Um, you know, Appa and, and Matt talked about China's price competitiveness vis-a-vis Iran. I think there's some evidence of that in Venezuela as well. Are Chinese buyers waiting to sort of see whether they'll be able to get bigger discounts, whereas now Venezuela has been selling to India, they've been selling to others, um, you know, and, and it's different tankers <laughs> that, that, that are, you know, able now to carry Venezuelan crude after April, that, that may not be the case. And so I think what's, what the market's waiting for also is signals of what the sort of wind down period might look like and like, but, you know, I think it's notable to say that from a perspective, players that were already active in Venezuela, like Chevron and so on, have obviously kind of solidified their position, but new players coming in to actually invest, mm. they've been sort of wary because the worry was yeah. the door could be closed again. And that's probably been warranted. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose maybe we won't get clarity on that till after the election, as you said, with so many questions for the energy sector there in the US. Thank you so much to Abha, Rachel and Matt for joining us. There's the result of our survey. It's quite tight. 56% saying yes, we've factored in that it's probably going to continue for, for, for the remainder of the year, possibly. And we have our halftime talk just to show you everyone uh, with uh, the DME coming up uh, in an hour uh, or so. Uh, worthwhile uh, uh, interview to watch there. Um, great insight there from Russell Robertson on sort of the changing flows uh, of, of, of trade um, in terms of uh, the, the benchmarks, et cetera, that we're seeing in the region and what expectations are, including uh, the, the stake that... Um, was bought by Saudi Tadao on DME. So it's quite interesting there to see his perspective on what new products uh, are expected to come out of the region there on the exchanges. So thanks so much for joining us, everybody, and uh, have a great rest of the week.